You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. A glance at the future landscape of GI practice is not really great. The reason I say that is because of reimbursement is going down, demand is going up. We have a lot of issues in managing practice for the day-to-day practitioner. So my question to you is, really, how are these things going to work out in the future? My guest today is medical management expert, Dr. Joel Brill. Dr. Brill is also chair of the AGA Institute's Clinical Practice Management and Economic Committee and chief medical officer of Predictive Health. We look now at the scope of the future of GI. Welcome, Dr. Brill, to ReachMD. Thank you very much, Jay. So tell us, what's the future have for a practicing gastroenterologist? Well, certainly none of us can predict what's going to happen with the elections and how that will impact the practice of medicine. But having said that, there are certainly some threats on the horizon. Many of us have changed our practices in recent years and have focused so much on colorectal cancer screening. And that has not gone unnoticed by both health policy experts, folks at insurers and Medicare who make payments, as well as people in the medical device industry. There are a whole host of new technologies out there that are poised to invade our turf for colorectal cancer screening, and that will have an impact on what we do in the future. We've also seen some recent activity by CMS, Medicare, to regulate what we can do with pathology services, and there was, in fact, a recent court ruling earlier this month in May, which reaffirmed Medicare's position to, in effect, outlaw practice that as some of us know as client billing or marking up the technical component of services that some of us may provide. And there's some other things on the horizon as well that should certainly give us pause for thought in the years to come. Well, I think you've kind of outlined a bleak future here. Are you telling me that the golden age of gastroenterology is over? You know... I've been a gastroenterologist now for over 20 years, and I think that every one of those years I've heard the same comment, that the golden age of gastroenterology is coming to a close. I'm still waiting for that. No, I don't think the future is totally bleak, but I do think that for those of our colleagues who have staked their future solely on endoscopy, they need to recognize that they may need to broaden their horizons in order to be well-positioned for success in the future years. Well, let's pick up on that and talk a little bit about ambulatory endoscopy centers and their impact on the practice of gastroenterology and reimbursement. Almost, what, 20, 30% of gastroenterologists are associated with one of these freestanding clinics, endoscopy centers, rather. Why did they get into it, and what are the problems associated with them now? Many of our colleagues got into ambulatory endoscopy or ambulatory surgery centers for a number of reasons, but I would like to believe that the major reason that we did it was to improve patient care. You can control the scheduling of patients. You have a focused facility 
that's dedicated to doing endoscopy services only, as opposed to perhaps doing your procedures in a hospital outpatient setting where you might have to share operating room or endoscopy suite time with a number of other physicians, both gastroenterologists as well as non-gastroenterologists. And let's face it, not all procedures need to be done within a hospital setting. And the revolution in the ASC environment over the past 15 years or so has shown us that that's possible. But what has happened? Well, certainly at the beginning of this year's time, Medicare did change the fee schedule and has pegged ASC facility payments to being a percentage of hospital outpatient payments. That will take four years to implement and will be fully implemented by the year 2011. Now, it's not going to have a really major effect on what Medicare pays for our core procedures, such as a colonoscopy or colonoscopy with biopsy or a polypectomy. Reimbursement's going to go down a few dollars. The real impact, however, is going to be on screening colonoscopy because Medicare pays for that differently than they pay for our other endoscopic procedures. And if this continues unabated, by 2011, we could see a significant drop from, gosh, from $445 in 2007 down to $370 in 2011. The reason that that's of concern, of course, is that colorectal cancer screening begins at age 50. And for a number of commercial insurance companies that base their reimbursement rates off of a percentage of Medicare rates, that could have a significant impact if you've got an ASC and you're spending your time doing a lot of screening colonoscopies on commercial patients, folks in that 50 to 65 year range or so. One of the reasons why you start need to diversify. But having said that, ASCs, we've shown that we can provide excellent services to patients in a safe and a caring and a compassionate manner. And let's face it, there are still a ton of patients out there who still need to have colorectal cancer screening. But the heyday of ASCs built specifically for gastroenterology is probably going to shift over the next couple of years' time as other specialties like urology and orthopedic surgery and gynecology become more appealing to those ASC developers. Well, before you go on, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Jay Goldstein, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Brill on strategies to overcome the financial vulnerabilities of our GI practices. Well, let's pick up again a little bit more about those ASCs. When you want to go into them in the past, they were fairly lucrative. It gave you some autonomy, as you've already pointed out, but there are pressures to stagnate or prevent further growth of these programs across the country. Do you still think it's a viable option for people in practice now to initiate an ASC for their own practice? Well, Jay, I think it's appropriate for folks who haven't gotten into the ASC business to certainly think about that. But I also think that they need to expand their horizons. And what do I mean by that? If you'll note, I commented that there are some other professions, some of other specialties, such as gynecology and urology, which traditionally haven't been involved in the ASC marketplace, but now may be more appealing from an ASC standpoint. So if you're a 
group and you're looking to actually build your own ASC, you might want to look at the fact, do you want to build a single specialty gastroenterology-only ASC, or do you want to look at the possibility of partnering, perhaps, with colleagues from other specialties who perform procedures that could be performed in the same space, such as an endoscopy suite. And again, urology and gynecology come readily to mind. One of the other things that I think a savvy business person should be doing is looking now at locking in some long-term contracts. One of the things that I'm sure a payer would be interested in doing is knowing, for example, that if you're willing to negotiate a multi-year payment contract, that helps them to guide what their budget is going to be like. It also helps you to guide what your budget can be, and it helps you to lock in some payments, especially if you can lock in payments um, based on a negotiated fee instead of a payment that's based solely on a percentage of what Medicare pays. Well, before we leave the topic of ASCs, is there anything that you would really like to tell our audience and share with them based on your experience or your expertise in this area? Well, I think that one of the things that goes along with this is, again, this whole focus on colorectal cancer screening. And looking at what's coming down the road, obviously the new kid on the block is going to be CT colonography. So for practices that currently have an ASC or practices that are thinking about building an ASC, they should be looking at how they can incorporate CT colonography into their practice settings. As I mentioned beforehand, one of the questions is the gastroenterologist, someone who's defined by, I scope, therefore I am, or is your gastroenterology practice one that's going to be focused on um, positioning your practice as being the experts in colorectal cancer prevention, screening, and detection? And if you believe the latter and you become more of a full-service practice in that aspect, then thinking about how you can incorporate CT colonography and the like into your practice setting and how you can accommodate your referring physicians in your neighborhood so that you are seen as being the referral source may be another way to mitigate and prepare for success in the future. Maybe you want to comment on some medical legal issues associated with reading and performing CT colography that our listeners may be unaware of? Well, I think that there's probably a few main issues that our listeners should be thinking about. The first thing is that Medicare doesn't pay for services in the absence of signs or symptoms. And up to this point, or at least up to now, there have been very few commercial insurance carriers that have also paid for a screening CTC. But Jay, as you're aware, earlier this month, the American Cancer Society, the American College of Radiology, and the Multi-Society Task Force, which includes the three GI societies, published recommendations on colorectal cancer screening. And in those recommendations, they did embrace and endorse CT colonography as being an alternative to colonoscopy and some of the other methods that we're all familiar with. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Brill, for joining us today. You've added depth to the conversation, and I look forward to speaking to you again. I really think that the information you've conveyed to us is a valuable asset for practicing physicians. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute, and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, 
visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.